You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. You couldn't do that on vinyl. You couldn't do that with 8-track, and some of you don't know what I'm talking about. So that's the problem when you're doing a series. Anytime you're talking about music, you always have these generations, right? But there's one thing that's consistent in every generation, every style of music, and I get to talk about it today. It's love songs. Everybody loves a good love song, don't they? How many of you, true story, raise your hand really high so I can see. How many of you have a song that when it comes on the radio, you look at your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife, and you go, that's our jam, baby. How many of you have that? You got one. You know it, right? There's something profound about love songs. They just have this way of connecting and expressing what we really want to get out but don't know how to get out. In fact, so much so, did you know there's an entire book in the Bible dedicated to this? We talked about it last year. It's a great little series we did. You should go listen to it. It's called Songs of Solomon or The Song of Songs. It's kind of an arrogant title. It's like of all the songs ever written, this is the jam. And uh, the whole point of that is Solomon wrote about a thousand songs, and he said this is the best one because it's all about a husband and a wife and their struggle with intimacy and fighting and also joy and pleasure, and all of it is in the book. You should read it sometime. But... Regardless, the whole point is that love songs touch us in unique and profound ways. And love songs just have this way, I think, of putting to words what we're feeling in our hearts and in our minds. And some of us who aren't wordsmiths struggle to get out. Like this little ditty. I'm going to read a song to you. I'm going to do my best to read no emotion or, or tune or melody. It's hard to do. However, I want to know, collectively, can you sing... The next line. The last service failed. They knew the song. I don't care if you know the song. I want to know if you can sing the next line. You ready? Here we go. <clears throat> you know, our love was meant to be the kind of love to last forever. And I want you here with me from tonight until the end of time. You should know everywhere I go, always on my mind, in my heart, in my soul. Some of you are like, I am not singing. <laughs> and none of you got the right next word. <laughs> baby, thank you very much. <laughs> Every good love song has a baby, a honey, a darling, right? If it's in there somewhere and you missed it, it's your chance. All right, we'll try it again. We'll try it again. Ready? Here's another one. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, there it is. Baby, I know it. How, how, how long did it go? Keep going. All right, what movie? All right, you all lived in the 80s. Everybody under 30 is like, I have no idea what just happened in the room. <laughs> YouTube it. You'll see uh, Tom Cruise before the nose job. All right, anyway. <laughs> By the way, I, this is not in my sermon. This week in our planning meeting, I just realized how old I am. We were talking about doing this theme and summer music, and I was like, oh, we're going to do Will Smith Summertime. And Amos, our new worship guy you saw in the video, he goes, Will Smith did music? <laughs> For those of you under 30, Google it. <laughs> Love you, Amos. All right. 
Love songs are amazing and fickle, are they not? I mean, you get one extreme of a love song where it's like, you're the best thing ever this ever happened. You're the inspiration. You're the reason I live. You get things that are like, hey, baby, I want to spend a night with you. That song of Solomon. We'll leave that for another message. Then you get other things like, you know, now that you're not in my life, I don't know how I'm going to live. I don't know what I'm going to do anymore. But they're all kind of in the genre of love songs. And biblical love songs really are like that too. See, what love songs really have the ability to do, don't miss this, is they have the ability to communicate an honest truth. A profound honest truth, one that needs to be expressed in some way or another. Now, the difference between biblical love songs and, say, secular, whatever, regular love songs is the truth that's being expressed is about God versus about others. Because, see, there is a difference. Country music, perhaps better than any other genre of music, has some really awesome love songs. How about these lines? This comes from Loretta Lynn. You're the reason our kids are ugly, little darling. Oh, but looks ain't everything, and money ain't everything, and I love you just the same. Because nothing says I love you like you're the reason our kids are ugly, baby. You hear that little darling in there? You know what's crazy is you find similar words in biblical psalms. It's just it's not darling or baby or muffin. You know, somehow it's always about food or little things. I don't know. But in the Bible, we do find these words that express, like, here's how I feel about you. There are real love songs in the Bible. Here's another classic country love song. Patsy Cline says, I love you, honey. I love your money. I love your automobile. You're the sweetest thing on wheels. I love your kisses. I wouldn't miss it no matter how I feel. I'm not sure what she really loves about him, but she really wants his wallet in his car while he's kissing her. Other than that, I don't know that there's much to their relationship. I'm thinking when the car dies, the relationship might go with it. But now when you extrapolate all these pieces and you put them into a biblical context, see what the difference is when I'm singing a song to my wife, uh, God forbid that ever happens, but when I'm singing a song to my wife, I'm singing as what's called a limited creature to another limited creature. So I'm imperfect, I'm broken, and I make mistakes. I know it's hard to imagine. I do. And my wife does too. And so it's me trying to sing to her something somebody else has written for somebody else to try to communicate something. But when the Bible is writing songs, what you have is you still have one side of the broken equation. You have me or someone else. Usually, most of the psalms are written by a guy named David, but there are others. There's the sons of Korah, Moses, there's Solomon. And they're trying to communicate a truth, a vulnerable, honest truth back up to God. And they're trying to express uh, a need, a want, a desire, even that ecstasy that we kind of refer to, that we talk about in marital love, many times the psalmists are trying to express that back to God. And see, that may weird you out, and you're like, now nah, the thing just got freaky. But understand this, there are really two camps when it comes to the Songs of Solomon. I land in both camps. And many see in the Song of Solomon not a, a, a love song between a husband and a wife and they're expressing marital love and intimacy, but rather it's the love that God has for us and we have for him. I don't think that holds up, but I do believe that marriage was created to point us back to God. See, when you go all the way back to the beginning, we find that God made man in his own image. And that's, by the way, man and women. And what we kind of learn is that husbands and wives are supposed to represent the, tri the trinity or the triune nature of God. Meaning that two individuals who are really separate will become one in their lives. And that was the goal. And the reason that's the goal is because that's who God is. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we cannot refer to God as they or them. God 
is God because the three, while separate, are one. Do you see the picture? And the reason this is important is because we get to the book of Revelation and we find out that the church, those who are in Christ, are actually the bride of Christ. Men and women are the bride of Christ. Not because God's going to change your gender like maybe culture suggests today, but because God has every intention to love you like a husband is supposed to love his wife. So he tends to protect you and to care for you and to watch out for you and to literally do whatever is necessary to meet your need, whatever your need is, you're supposed to be able to go to him and find that need being met in him. See, God doesn't have a limitation, not in his character and not in his love over you. He's not meatloaf. Anybody in here like meatloaf? I mean the musician, okay, not the food. <laughs> you remember these words for meatloaf? As long as the planets are turning, as long as the stars are burning, as long as dreams are coming true, you'd better believe it that I would do anything for love. Oh, I'd do anything for love. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. No, I won't do that. Whatever that is, he will not do it, and he lets you know. And if you've ever seen the video, it's kind of weird. But what in the world is going on here? See, get this and don't miss it. Human love songs are doing their best to express what we're feeling. Maybe whatever he won't do is a good thing. I don't know. He won't tell me. But God never looks at you and says, I won't do that. Philosophically, yes. It's like, could God create a, ever create a rock so big he couldn't move it? Well, it's a dumb question. Because if you, the theory is, if he can't, then he's not all-powerful. And if he can, then he's not all-powerful. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's kind of a dumb question. Like, can I come up with a philosophical argument that God can't win? That's kind of what we're trying to come up with. But God literally puts no limitations on his desire to express his love for you. You could theoretically say, well, then God will let me sin and do whatever I want. And, you, and I would say, yeah, God will let you sin and do whatever you want. But because he loves you, he pursues you anyway. And he knows what's best for you, and he won't let you keep going down that road. He keeps fighting for you, moving, stirring, creating situations in your life that grow you and force you to grow. But God never says, I won't do that. To the point where he took his own son and crucified him. In the ultimate act and display of selfless love, God said, I literally will do whatever it takes for you to know there's no limitation on my love. Now, if you're in the under 30 crowd, you may be saying, I don't know any of these song references. Isn't there anything today that you could have gotten for me? Okay, so. <clears throat> Is it too late now to say I'm sorry? Oh, I know. I never claimed to be funny. All right. What I want you to get, there are many things, but one of the major things I want you to get is this. Your heavenly father is a loving being who wants to give you what you need. And I want you to look at him with the eyes of a passionate lover. That language is actually used to describe God. And it's not weird. It's weird because we have sexualized every component of love in our culture. Mainly because we use sex in our culture to manipulate this phrase I came across when I was a youth pastor I think is so true. Women use sex to get love and men use love to get sex. Is it always true? Of course not. But it just goes to the manipulation that's naturally in the sinful heart. Did you know the Bible says that God is a jealous lover? 
Do you know we're actually told not to grieve the Holy Spirit by our actions? Why? Because the Spirit longs for us to be connected in unity to God. That phrase is one of the major problems that Oprah has with the God described in the Bible. She can't understand how God could be a jealous lover. But the problem for Oprah is that jealousy in our world looks different than it does in God's. But the emotion is the same. God longs for you to love him. Uh, worship him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to literally hold nothing back, just like a husband would a wife when marriage is at its best. Henry Cloud, in his book, How People Grow, I've been reading this book, phenomenal book, highly recommend it. He writes this, God originated life, and we were given life. Therefore, we depended on God for life. And for all that we needed. God's role was to provide. Our role was to receive. God gave breath. We took it in. God gave the garden. We lived in it and ate from it. God gave us relationship. We received intimacy and relatedness. Our role was designed to be a dependent one. He provides. We depend and trust. If God is the creator and we are the creation, we have to depend on him for life and provision. Independence is not an option for us. God existed without us, not vice versa. So it wouldn't surprise us then, given all that we've talked about, that we would see these same kinds of emotions and honesty and and expressions in the Bible if this love is accurate. Let me show you a psalm. This comes from Psalm 57. Psalm 57, verse 7 is where we're going to start. And I just want you to see, I was going to do this, and I thought, this is like borderline heresy maybe, so I'm going to not do it. But if you were to take out the God and the Lord words in these few verses, put in their baby or darling, you could read this as a love poem, maybe an ancient love poem, but a love poem nonetheless. Take a look. Psalm 57, verse 7. My heart is confident in you, O God. My heart is confident. No wonder I can sing your praises. Oh, wake up, my heart. Wake up, O liar and harp. I will wake the dawn with my song. I will thank you, Lord, among all the people. I will sing your praises among the nations. For your unfailing love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. I mean, again, Take out the gods and the lords, insert whatever you want, and it sounds like a love song, doesn't it? You're amazing. I just can't wait to tell the whole world how amazing you are. You're beautiful. I wake up in the morning, can't wait to express to the world just how beautiful you are. I want everybody to know about your amazingness. Sounds like a love song, doesn't it? And it is. Because in this song, David is expressing to God what we call worship. He's expressing to God gratitude, thankfulness, appreciation for who he is, his character. But understand this. The reason David's expressing all of these things is because he's in a bad place, which is where a lot of love songs come from, aren't they? I was watching a VH1 documentary. It's been many years ago now. But they were talking about how sometimes the end of every musician is when they get married. Because the drama tends to go away. I'm not sure that's true for my marriage. But most musicians write their love songs from somebody they met, had a fling, and wrote about it. Or they met, fell in love with for a few months, and then it ended, then they wrote about it. And as soon as they get married and settle down, all of a sudden, they don't have any more songs left to write. It's kind of funny, isn't it? But when you look at this, here's what's going on for David. 
don't know if you know David's story, but he's been anointed king roughly 15 years old. And David is not yet king because the guy who is king, his name is Saul. He, Saul started out loving God, passionate for God and his glory, but then he lost it. And so God handed Saul over to his desires. And Saul became a miserable man, tormented, literally, spiritually. Even in his mind, he became crazy almost. So when David starts to gain in prominence in Saul's kingdom, he becomes a general of the army. He keeps winning all these battles. Everybody loves David and speaks of a day when David would make a great king. But Saul is a current king. His pride and his jealousy raises up. Saul keeps trying to kill David, literally throwing spears at him. In God's sovereign plan, he's arranged it so that when Saul is being tormented, David must come in and play his harp. It'd be like an old school guitar. And that harp actually brings peace to Saul's character. But it only enrages Saul. This guy can do everything. And so David leaves the kingdom running for his life. He finds himself hiding in a cave at one point. And Saul has raised up the greatest warriors in all of Israel to find David and kill him. And David writes this psalm. I don't want to read the whole psalm to you. You get a little bit more of the context then. Psalm 57, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. Now notice it'll say interlude there. It doesn't say it here. If you were to go look it up in your Bible, if you have your Bible app open or just open the Bible in front of you, there's a little word here, interlude. In some translations, you'll see like a selah. It's like a pause in the text. We don't even exactly know because we're so far removed from their culture 100% what to do with it, but it's like the author's chance to breathe and let what he just said sink in. I'm in a terrible place. I'm hiding and hoping they don't find the right cave that I'm in. My life is over. I need you. I need you. Same kind of words a lover says, right? I need you to show up. I need you to protect me. I need you to care for me. But notice the difference. See, when my wife is calling on me, she knows she's calling on somebody imperfect. As much as I hate that, she knows it. David's calling on someone, and he's calling on God's character. You've told me I'll be king. You anointed me king in front of my brothers. I trust that your plan for me is not done yet. So I'm terrified, but I have hope. I'm concerned, but I have peace. He goes on. i got to find the interlude. They're all words to me. I'll read it from here. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. My God will send forth his unfailing love and faithfulness. Hang on to that. We're going to talk about that. No, go back. You're right. I am surrounded by fierce lions who greedily devour human prey, whose teeth pierce like spears and arrows, and whose tongues cut like swords. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. Let's just keep going through them. My enemies have set a trap for me. I am weary from distress. They have dug a pit, deep pit in my path, but they themselves have fallen into it. 
My heart is confident in you. Oh, God, my heart is confident. No wonder I can sing your praises. Do you hear the difference between the way that David is singing a song and the way that love songs today go? Think about that song that I did. Again, many of you may not know the song. That's okay. You're the inspiration, right? I kind of jokingly put on a Facebook, which favorite love song? My goodness, I got so many options. Really, Barbara Manatee? But anyway, that's a VeggieTales song. This is one of the most popular. You're the inspiration. You think about what he is saying to his lover. You're the meaning in my life. You're what gives me hope. You're, the, you're everything to me. Without you, I wouldn't be who I am. This is exactly what David is saying about God. Without you, I'm nothing. The difference is that if she leaves, I don't remember who wrote the wrong, Peter Cetera, whatever. If she leaves his life, he'll go on. He may even at some point meet another. But if God were to leave your life, then what? Then what? What if you were to leave God? Then what? It's in those next verses that David gets into the about his heart and his love and his adoration for the Father. See, love songs in the Bible take a great need or a great desire or a great fulfillment and they express it back to God. I did kind of do a search about, um, you know, were there really any good modern day love songs? And I'm sure there's some I missed, and you can shoot me an email or a message on Facebook later if you really feel that passionate about it. I didn't come up with very many good ones. And part of the reason I didn't come up with very many good ones is because I kept coming up with songs today that had to do with everything had to do with like intimacy and what happens in the bedroom, either biblically or not biblically. Or I had to, or I kept coming across songs where someone had cheated, someone was begging someone else to cheat, um, or somebody was talking about that they'd been cheated on. And it just amazed me. I'm like, wow, so our great popular money-making love songs today all have to do with lack of faithfulness, which really spoke powerfully to me about where we are as a culture. Last night, I was um, getting my haircut, and I like to go different places, different people get my haircut, which is why I always end up with a different haircut, good, bad, or otherwise, um, because I just keep moving around, because I love meeting people, and I love hearing their stories. And I met this young girl last night. She's like 20 years old. Her parents got divorced when she was around nine, I believe she said. And then each of her parents subsequently ended up in relationships and then ended up in another relationship. And they've been in those relationships for quite some time. When she was around 13, her mom was with a man who was just not kind to her mother and not at all good for the kids. And she finally went to her mom and said, Mom, I don't, what are you doing? Like, this guy is cruel, he's not kind, he doesn't treat us good. She's telling me all this while she's cutting my hair. She's getting quite angry. I'm thinking, could you leave a little bit? But anyway... Her mom left that guy and met another guy. When she was around 15 or 16, she met the man that she thought she'd spend the rest of her life with. So right towards the end of her high school year, she moved in with him and his parents. Then they moved into an apartment. And two months ago, they broke up. And now she's stuck with an ex-boyfriend as a roommate. And it's created quite the awkwardness, as you can imagine. And I asked her, what was the real reason? Did you leave him? Did he leave you? And she said, it was mutual, but it was mutual majorly coming from her. He didn't want to settle down. He didn't want to be faithful. 
It shouldn't surprise us, given where we see marriages today, and that love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. (laughs) And since marriage is the primary analogy for God and his people, it shouldn't surprise us that Satan wants to attack the home. And then it shouldn't surprise us that as the home falls apart, that we have a plethora of love songs, not expressing how awesome someone is in their life, but instead expressing lack of faithfulness or a fear that it might come. Jolene, anybody? I heard that song. I'm like, "Ah, this is like an amazing musical thing with pentatonics, but dude, is it sad. But it's where we are. But it's not where we are with God. Notice that David, in the midst of his struggle and hardship, yeah, he's got questions about where the relationship stands. Like, God, I need you, and are you going to show up? And I'm in a hard place. But then he starts to proclaim this confidence. But I know you're not done with me. Your purposes for me are not fulfilled. I trust you. You are a loving and faithful God. See, here's the thing to know about God. God will never fail you. You may feel like it here today. You may have been far from God and you're coming to church. You're like, how do I know that's true? Well, one of the ways I know it's true is because it can't be in the character of God. It doesn't mean that you won't go through hardship. It just means that he'll go through it with you. But he cannot fail you. There's this great passage that Bible scholars love to fight and argue about. What exactly does it mean? I don't even care about the argument. I just love the passage for what I think God meant it for. He says this, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Some translations say, abandon you. Do you think when God says never, he means never? Do you think he means, well, never unless? Because he never unless is what most of us have experienced on earth. But God is not a never or less God. Because he's banking it on his character, not on you. He loves you, and he won't quit on you. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. You know this, right? His love endures forever. This is where this comes from. 26 verses of it. Take a look. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who alone does mighty miracles. Do you see where this is going yet? His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully. Say it with me. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who placed earth among the waters. With me. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who made the heavenly lights. Here we go. His faithful love endures forever. The sun to rule the day. His faithful love endures forever. And the moon and the stars to rule the night. His faithful love endures forever. 17 more verses just like this. Dips back into where we just ended last series. Dips back into Egypt and the Red Sea and Pharaoh. What's going on here? The psalmist is remembering. Look at what you did here and look at what you did here and look at what you did here. You're an amazing God. The same word in Hebrew is used over and over and over. It's the same word used in the psalm I read previously in Psalm 57. The one that describes the faithful love of the Lord. It's the Hebrew word 
Hesed or Chesed, depending on how you pronounce it. And it means something like loving, loving kindness, faithful love, steadfast love. These are how some of our translations, the NASB, the NIV, the NLT, the ASV, this is how they translate it. We're all grasping in our language to put to meaning this very word in the Hebrew, but it's a powerful word because it tells you no matter what's ever happened or happening in your life, your God is faithful. He's steadfast. You may not know what that word means because we don't use it much today. It means he's resolute and he's not quitting. He's not going anywhere. This word is used roughly 250 times in the Old Testament alone. 128 times in the Psalms. 26 of them are in this one psalm alone, 26. It's used over and over and over. Each time David is recalling the glory of God as seen through his mighty works from generations past. He wasn't even there. That was so far before David came onto the scene. But David trusts the mighty hand of God because he's seen it in generation after generation after generation. And he knows he could trust God. See, don't miss this. Trust comes from faithfulness. When there's faithfulness in a relationship, there's vulnerability. Because vulnerability allows us to feel safe enough to be ourselves. But when there's no faithfulness in a relationship, vulnerability goes away as we no longer trust those around us to to be safe. And God is letting you know I am always safe. You can always turn to me, you can always come to me, and I want to bless you. Perhaps the best theological definition of grace is unmerited favor. Favor literally just means that God is for you, not against you. He wants what's good for you. He wants you to be healthy and whole. He wants to bless you. Unmerited means you didn't earn it and there's nothing you could do to earn it. So he wants that for you, not manipulatively. I'll do this and you do that. No, it's unmerited favor. I love you simply because I love you. Man, what would it be like to experience that love? It shouldn't surprise us then that John describes God this way. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. He says, dear friends, let us consider, or sorry, dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Perhaps more than any other word, perhaps more than holy or perhaps more than just or righteous or or any of those other words we can use to describe God, perhaps love is perhaps the best word to describe him. And there's a reason, don't miss this. There was a phenomenal love song when I was growing up, I believe it was in the early 90s, by a band named DC Talk. Some of you are like, who is that? That's all right. The hundred of you in the room who know it, here was the words to that song. Love is a verb. Words come easy, but they don't mean much. And when the words you're saying you can't put trust in, we're talking about love in a different light. And if we all learned to love, it would be just right. There's nothing like classic 90s bad Christian rap to put words uh, that you're feeling out there. Now listen, I want you to get, really, they tapped into something about God. See, love, look it up. It's not an adjective. It's not an adverb. It is a verb. That means what? You remember English? That means it is an action. 
It must have feet behind it. It must have, yeah, words behind it. Expressing love in words is part of how we express love, but we also do something about it. How many weddings have you been to, and they use this famous passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? I believe it starts right around verse 4 or 5. Love is patience. Love is kind. You can almost say it just because you've been to a million weddings, right? It does not boast. It does not keep a record of wrongs. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. You remember this? Did you ever read the first few verses there? Take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would, be, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, I would sacrifice my own body. I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Now, these few verses here are full of action. And so you're like, I'm confused. You said love is action. There's lots of action. See, it has to be the two together. I guess you could say the three together. My heart, my mind, and my body. It's not enough for me to do good things to manipulate you, to get you to do good things. I know I'll do the dishes so that fill in the blank. I know I'll send a nice card so that fill in the blank. However, our actions in our heart and our mind, when it's all in sync, it just kind of comes out of us. And people know the difference, don't they? You know when you're being played and when you're really being loved. I'll never forget one of the ways, and I've shared this before, my wife wounded me once in a way I needed I remember, um, <laughs> I remember this moment profoundly because it was Valentine's Day, and I don't remember, it was like 12 years ago or so, and uh, it, it, my students, I was a youth pastor at the time, kept telling me how amazing the movie Napoleon Dynamite was, liars, and um, <laughs> so it was Valentine's Day, and I wanted to show my wife love, and I said, okay, we're going to go get dinner wherever you want, and since we don't have a lot of money, you know, we'll spend the money on food, we'll just come home, and the kids keep telling me this movie's amazing, we'll watch Napoleon Dynamite. Um, my wife went to bed halfway through. It was a lonely Valentine's night. And um, to this day, she'll never stop talking about that. Now, I remember profoundly, I didn't put any thought into Valentine's Day, obviously, that day. And I'll never forget, it was right about that same time my wife and I had this discussion about why was she so upset? I'm like, it was a bad movie. She said to me, she said, Matt, it's amazing to me. You can spend weeks, even months, planning an event for hundreds of teenagers but you can't put 30 minutes of thought into a date night with us. Yeah, ouch. And I got really defensive, started pleading my case, but all of my arguments were from somewhere in the past, not in the present. And what my wife was expressing to me was, Matt, your words say you love me, but your actions aren't backing that up. Now, did she quit on me? No. Was she hurt? Yeah. Did I have to win back some trust? Yeah. But she loved me enough to tell me the truth that I needed to hear. And sometimes when I get back into a rut and I'm no longer planning date nights, I hear that thing in my head again. Like, I remember she said this. It's important that I think through this. <clears throat> See, <clears throat> excuse me. The people around you, including God, know when you're expressing a real love or when you're just trying to manipulate. You ever be good for God so that he has to do something for you? 
When was the last time you thought to yourself, I know, I'll do this, and then God will have to do that? Just watch how many times God let you down then. As he tries to teach you a lesson that his favor is unmerited. He loves you simply because he loves you. He wants to bless you because he's good. It comes from who he is. He wants to provide for you. So Paul would say, therefore, live your life for him. Not to get something from him. You've already got everything you need from him. Just live your life for him. And watch everything change. Shouldn't surprise us then that Jesus says, of all of the commandments, the most important, love the Lord your God. You know it? With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Love is a verb. It can't just live up here or in here in an emotion. It must come out in action. Now, here's the takeaway. Here's the challenge, if you will, for you. <clears throat> I want you to think about how you're expressing love. Are you expressing it to God and are you expressing it to others? Is it manipulative love, love that you're hoping you'll give or do in order to get something in return? Or is it love for the sake of love? Is there a way that you sense the Spirit calling you to communicate love and you don't want to do it because it makes you uncomfortable? Maybe it's showing up at church and actually singing a song. And you're like, I'm not going to sing. I can't hold a tune and everybody will hear me. Or maybe it's like, oh, all they ever do is new songs at this church. Do you know this? we got every single psalm, 100 and something out of them because they kept writing new ones? When was the last time you sat down and wrote a poem to God or a prayer to God? And some of the dudes in the room were like, I'm not writing no song to God. That's just weird. I get it. You do realize David was probably, if not the, he's one of the greatest fighters of all time. He beat a nine-foot-tall dude. He was a small Jewish man. Put him in an MMA ring against anybody. He's going to win. And he wrote... Most of the Psalms. He was a warrior, a poet, a lover like you've never met. He is the ultimate guy that every woman wants to meet. Except that he isn't totally faithful like your God. Maybe sit down this week. Write God a song. Maybe meet with somebody that you're really uncomfortable with and just share a moment with them. My, my encouragement to you is after I read this next psalm, we're going to go into communion. <clears throat> my encouragement to you is this. I want you to spend time in communion asking God, God, how do you want me to express my love in a way that makes me most uncomfortable? And then do it this week. Because here's what David says, Psalm 40, <clears throat> verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Verse 9. I have told all your people about your justice. I have not been afraid to speak out. As you, O oh Lord, will know, I have not kept the good news of your justice hidden in my heart. I have talked about your faithfulness and saving power. I have told everyone in the great assembly of your unfailing love and faithfulness. I said, verse 16, 
But may all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, The Lord is great. There's something in you that wanted to shout it, didn't there? But you were afraid, weren't you? There's a part of you that wanted to go, yes, the Lord is great. But if I say it, and what if nobody else does it? It'll just be me and Matt, and I'll feel awkward. And that's how it is, isn't it? But see, when love takes over your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, you find yourself doing things that don't make sense because you love. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to go into communion time. Give me your service. You can go. And uh, I just want to start a prayer, enter you into a moment where you just say to God, God, show me your love and reveal to me, God, the most uncomfortable way that I can express my love and appreciation and need back to you. Here we go. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. You are ever present. You tell us, God, we're going to have struggles in this world. That doesn't mean you don't love us. It just means take heart. You overcame the world. We can always turn to you. We can always trust you. So God, I pray right now as we open up these prayers. God, you've loved us so much. You've poured out all of heaven's blessings and provisions and care over us. We have everything we need in Christ Jesus. So God, right now, would you just reveal to us the most uncomfortable way that we can express our love to you. And then God, give us the strength to do it. In Jesus' name.